0: This is Rusty Reno at the Editor's Desk here at First Things Magazine for the next installment of the Editor's Desk. And I'm very pleased to have with me today Kevin DeYoung, Senior Pastor at Christ Covenant Church and Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Kevin is going to talk about his essay in the November issue of First Things The Case for Kids. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk, and thanks for the opportunity to write the essay.
0: One thing that you lay out in this essay is the stunning reversal of what I guess we'd call sort of the biblical hope for children. The Not just the West, but really all throughout the world, there seems to be uh, the opposite, hope. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the, the biblical assumption, and it's so much an assumption, it doesn't even need to be argued for in the Bible, is that children are a great blessing. And it's the paradigmatic cry of affliction throughout both Testaments. When someone, when a woman is barren, when someone cannot conceive, and you think of, and I talk about this in the piece, but you think of Rachel's famous cry, give me a child lest I die. That's how much they wanted children. And to see that stunning reversal, and you can look at it with total fertility rates and the science behind that is not perfect, but it certainly gives a clear picture that in the West, America, Europe, but also the Far East, really everywhere in the world, fertility rates are plummeting. And even in those places where they're still well above replacement rate, which is largely sub-Saharan Africa, they're falling. But in particular, Europe, West, we might even say the places that once were considered Christendom are drastically, dreadfully below the replacement rate, which means not only on a Technological level, why might this be happening? You can speculate, and certainly technology makes it possible, but really on a on a heart level, why is it, and what's going on in our whole world that what used to be seen as the great desire of nations to have children is now considered an inconvenience such that humans are not even replacing themselves
0: I mean Abraham, the promise as I think of it is place. Prosperity and posterity. Yes, the land, prosperity, and then of course a child. And through Abraham, there will be his 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 posterity will be beyond number. Right. The total fertility rates that you that you adduce here are really quite stunning. I mean, some places like South Korea are below one child per woman, and the United States, which used to be thought of as an outlier has kind of come around to European level total fertility rate over the last four or five, six years. So it is, it is a striking turn away from children.
1: Yeah. And I, I've read articles on this for, you know, 15 years or so. And it, and it really was the case, even a half a generation ago, I remember reading things and the U S was, was the outlier in the Western world. And it was seen as, american exceptionalism and american religiosity and now it looks like simply american delay in the same and america was buoyed by artificial not artificial but by immigration and the rates that many immigrants have that are higher than the 2.1 tfr so it really is striking when you think about it in the span of less than a generation just in this country going from healthy, enough to replace yourself. And so 2.1 just accounts for two people and and other sorts of stillbirth or other things. You have 2.1 and now well below that by some measures, 1.7, really on par with other Western, with Western European nations. And what does this mean about the future of the United States? How, you know, what are the reasons for this? And again, I think there, there are at, at the fundamental level, you have to look at the heart and the way people conceive of children today. Now I know as a pastor this is a, whenever you talk about kids and how many kids it's very it's fraught with lots of difficulties because there's people that wanted to get married or got married late and have illnesses and miscarriages and quiet suffering and so I always want to give enough of those caveats less people think that there's a judgmental glance for everyone who doesn't have well I have nine kids, so we're definitely an outlier. But when this happens society-wide, you you have to see that there's there's something deeper going on with cultural, societal assumptions about what is the good life. One of the things that became clear when I was just doing reading and some research for this piece is how many nations have tried various programs. So you can look at Japan has tried, China has has attempted. Lots of pro-natalist policies, and they haven't worked because the government can help make it more possible for people to have the kids they want, but it hasn't yet proven possible to, to force people or convince them to have the kids they don't want.
0: Right. Yeah. I think some of my friends who are up on Hungary's efforts maybe we'll see over the long haul but there was a bump right and my friends say part of it is tremendous amount of social messaging about the good of children so to your point it's not just a matter of providing tax breaks or economic benefits but our family-friendly policies but there has to be a vision of the good life that is populated by children
1: right yeah that's a, and and I'm very curious too to see what happens over the next decade or so with some of those efforts in Hungary, because it it has to be a vision of what a a blessed life looks like, and everywhere in Scripture, it's the blessing. So we've been preaching through on Sunday night here, and I have some of uh, I had one of my pastoral interns preach this past week on Psalm 128, and I did Psalm 127 the week before, and those are two psalms right there in the Psalms of Ascent that both have to do with the blessing of children they have the famous imagery of the olive shoots and the man the warrior whose whose uh, quiver is full of arrows i mean it's just the it was the assumption that to have children was a sign that god had shown unique undeserved favor upon you in your household and i think that for many people even even church going folks they would say okay lord a couple of blessings, maybe <laughs> a couple, but after that, the blessings start to feel like a burden
0: well you you delve into some cultural changes, noticing that a hundred year or so years ago, at least for the well educated American, this notion of being a responsible parent means having fewer children uh, and the and it's not It's not population control stuff, at least not at the early stages. It's really about making sure you invest in your children. You can only invest in a small number. If you have too many children, you'll shortchange them somehow.
1: Yeah, we certainly, I mean, there's a feedback loop, which is hard to interrupt. And that's, that's part of it, that the fewer kids you have, the more opportunity you have to invest. And as prosperity has grown you have more opportunities to invest lots of money, lots of time and just thinking even if we talk to, you know, parents, grandparents generation, they would like, I'm sure they would say. They they didn't have soccer camps, they didn't have, you know, all sorts of courses to get them ready and prep them for the tests in high school that they were going to have to take. And and probably that's one reason you talk about South Korea is so low. I mean, there there's even greater pressure in many of those countries to be absolutely successful and you take a test at an early age and your whole career is so parents there are probably thinking, I gotta get this right and I gotta invest so much time and energy. And when we in America think that to be a good parent, sometimes it's actually the 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 parents who are most concerned about being good parents who feel like i have to be an expert cook because heaven forbid that my my child would eat you know fruity pebbles or something which is one of my favorite cereals some sugary cereal that you can't eat anymore because your kids will immediately combust uh, <laughs> so you got to give them the right foods you got to be a camp director you have to be a, a chef, you have to get them into the elite schools, you got to set them on this athletic path, and you have to have an ever-present safetyism around them. Well, if that's your expectation for yourself as a parent, and let's be honest, it's probably not the expectation our kids have. Some of them would probably say, mom, dad, just relax a little bit. Let me go ride my bike to the store and, you know, a mile away like you did when you were a kid and you sur- you know, survived. So, There are all sorts of cultural pressures and messages that we give ourselves that make us think if we're going to be a good parent, we better not have too many of these little rugrats.
0: There's a bit of the grip of mammon here in the sense of it's not the selfishness of the parents. Paradoxically, it's their selflessness. They want to make sure that their kids are successful. But success is measured here in worldly terms.
1: Yeah, that's right. I you know, and this happens it's called worldliness. One of my professors in seminary said worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And that's always stuck with me. And that's true. It's 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 worldliness because it just seems so normal. And we do want what's best for our kids and we do love them and we do want them to have advantages and we want boy, if they're gonna be an Olympic athlete, we wanna pour that in, or if they're gonna be a brilliant scholar. We want every opportunity for them to do that. And that's a good impulse unless we start to think of ourselves as God, unless we start to doubt that there is a providential ordering of their lives. And and actually, what our kids often need much more than all of that are the simpler things. They need to know, you know, I, I think if I could give my kids a sense That mom and dad love each other, mom and dad love Jesus, mom and dad love the church, and mom and dad love them. And to some degree, kind of how you, the the rest is how much money you have and what you want to do and how adventurous you can or can't be with your life. That's what you really need to give to your kids. And you know what? You can give that to one or to two or to 20. Okay, but I don't have 20. Uh, Not many people do. But you can give that to a a, a lot of kids. I mean, every parent knows this. Your love multiplies with with new children, new grandchildren. It doesn't decrease. You don't have to cut it in half.
0: I can see in the lives of some of my friends who have large families that a lot of people who have two or three children are just, how can I possibly take care of six? And I tell them, you know, actually the older ones take care of the younger ones at a certain point. So the labor, you know, the ordinary labor of running the household is does not, doesn't all fall on mom and dad in a large family.
1: Yeah. And I I always tell, because I get that a lot, and we didn't set out to, it wasn't some grand plan to have nine kids. We we thought we wanted to have, we both came from one of four. And so we thought we wanted to have four or five. And we just, you know, we we didn't do anything to to not have them. So we, we kept having them. And I get the question a lot. Boy, I feel so overwhelmed with three. I don't know how you do nine. And I would say, well, I don't know how we do it either because our house is chaos all the time. So don't give me too much credit. But then to your point, it's absolutely true. I, I always say to parents, the, the hardest adjustment is from zero to one. And when you have one child and you have that first child, you think, I couldn't, you know, possibly do anything more. And I'm up all night and he has so many demands and I have to do everything. And then sometime later, if you have four or five, I mean, now I, I think, I mean, one, why was I stressed out? Or four? I mean, I could go to the moon with four kids. I don't, <laughs> if, if, if they're not in diapers, I could do anything, but it doesn't feel that way when you're in that moment. And so uh, I just try to tell parents, don't don't think, you're absolutely right. Don't think that it's all just multiplied by nine. There's lots of other factors, and yeah, even even the you know I, I wish my kids just you know ran the house for us, but they can do a lot more when when called upon than you think. And certainly, they look after each other.
0: You um, draw on Mary Eberstadt a bit. She's been very good about the relation of faith and children, and children and faith. We tend to think that well the faithful tend to have more children. And she goes, well, maybe, but actually childlessness is a factor in people's alienation from the church.
1: Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, when I first read that from her, whenever, whenever that book came out, it really crystallized things I had thought about, but I hadn't put it together in all of those ways. I mean, her her argument is essentially that, that faith and family formation rise or fall together. And we usually get the one that if you don't have people of faith, they're not going to have kids, they're not going to raise kids, they're not going to put them in the church. We get that. But it also works the other way that when you don't have families, when you don't have stable, healthy family life, it it removes perhaps the greatest plausibility structure for faith. And there's a lot of Theories about this you know it could be just you need the church because you need help with your kids, you want them to to be on the right path, you want them to know the Lord. It could be the the wonder and you talked about the the illustration from Whitaker Chambers saying how he saw just his daughter's ear led him to religious faith, but it's also the fact and and everson points this out. That there are so many things that you, you just can't get away from the Christian view of the family, namely that you have a man and a woman married and they're supposed to enter into that one flesh union only upon marriage. And then they have children and they should stay married and they raise those kids. Well, if you have a society at large that no longer values those things and sometimes stigmatizes the opposite of those things. Yeah, no one likes to be told that what they're doing or what their loved ones did were mistakes, let alone sins, even if we say, but they can be forgiven and you can get a fresh start. It it is a new obstacle in our day to people coming to faith. Because now they you you know you can't be the Christian church in continuity with the history of the Christian church and jettison these things, though people try. But you can't, and that means there are there are added obstacles to people when they have to come to faith. I, I was just saying to our our staff today, as we were talking about some of these things, that on an earthly level, of course, God can do anything, and He's sovereign. But on an earthly level, if there's any magic societal pill out there, it's marriage. I mean, if you could just wave some policy wand that would affect. The, the, you know, dozens of other areas of health or disease in our culture or our body politic. I think that the, the most important of those on an earthly level would be marriage, a husband and a wife getting married, staying married, having children, raising children together.
0: You conclude the piece with a modest proposal, two modest proposals. Well, really, Actually, I think there are three there. But, and you just said it right there, family at the center of a renewed conservatism, really family at the center of any plausible approach to renewing the West, I would argue. But if the family continues to disintegrate, I think it's kind of game over for having a coherent society.
1: I mean, that that is the, the good news and the bad news. I mean, the, the bad news is, you're right, we can, you know, you can try to get better candidates, you can try to get better policies, you can try to get better books and Yeah, yeah. write good things in first. I mean, you can do all of that if the family is not renewed. We're strengthening what remains, and that's important. Now, the good news in that is human nature is what human nature is, and God is still God. And part of what we need to do, and it starts with our families, but it also needs to, to work through local churches and parishes to present this not as some ancillary thing like you're, you know, of course, of course, get married, have kids, and then do the really important stuff in life. No, we we need to celebrate because we imitate what we celebrate. And there's something of a, you know, we're always driven by what is stigmatized. And that's hard because stigmas are painful. And we need to allow people to Find forgiveness when they run afoul of standards. And yet, cultural, sig- societal stigmas, they serve a purpose. Stigma usually speaks louder than dogma. And we wish that just tell people what's right, but it's what the community says this is what a good life looks like, this is how good people operate. And it's scary to think that in many places, you know, elite coastal enclaves or universities, the stigma would be having kids, let alone having lots of children because you're a, you're a cancer on the environment and what about your carbon footprint? We, we need to have a healthy kind of wonderful expectation in Christian community in particular and beyond that in a renewed conservatism that to put the family at the center of what we're doing is absolutely critical and important. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't believe in rights and the rights of the individual, but that sort of atomistic individualism is not going to win the day.
0: You mentioned Carl Zimmerman, who, the 1947 book on family, his far-seeing prophecy that liberalization of attitudes would be a kind of reinforcing uh, downward spiral. And I'm, Which I think has certainly been the case in my lifetime where, you know, you want, you don't want people to be, you know, divorce. Okay. A lot of people got divorced in the seventies. You don't want the children of divorcees to carry the stigma or something like that. And so we relax the stigma against divorce. Well, but that then it makes divorce easier and easier and easier. And, you know, cohabitation, homosexuality, then the list goes on. I'm just wondering whether right, you do reach a kind of bottom on what you're experiencing in your ministry, where people are willing to say, no, this, this, my, my life, and what I have, you know, this has not worked.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> please,
0: please, pastor, tell me, you know, what is right and what is wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's, and I hope that is happening, and I think you see glimmers. You know, just uh, the size of a man's fist. Elijah would say, mm. "It's just out there." But I think I try to remind myself and my congregation and other Christians: yes, there's a lot of cultural winds blowing against this sort of vision. But besides, hopefully, you know, being in step with God and His Word, you have human nature, and and that doesn't change. And I, you're absolutely right that people at some point say this define my own life the mystery of my own existence in my own sex in my own sexuality this is not working it's not working for me it's not working writ large and where are the the healthy communities where are the the happy families i mean i, I would dare to say though we all know conservative Christians who are, you know, they're sinners like everybody else and there's bad examples. But I dare say that you're going to find more happy people. And there's lots of surveys that bear this out. More happy people among married men and women with children in communities of faith who are nurturing and reinforcing those very old, very boring, bourgeois sort of values, but they're not just that, they're really the way God made us and the way God intends things to work and to flourish.
0: You urge the reader to put aside a prejudice against early marriage. I I must say, when I read that, I, I went, yeah, there is a prejudice, especially among the college educated, that somehow you have to get all your ducks in a row before you get married. That's kind of a crazy view. You never get all your ducks in a row.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly true. And when, when people say, well, I need to have, you know, have all my finances, right? Well, yeah. What what career are you in? Are you a hedge fund manager? When are you getting just all your finances? You don't have to think about that anymore. Of course, there are, we know it's a case by case. and We know there are, there are people you have to say, hey, friend, brother, sister, child, you're not ready, but writ large... Yes. I think we've, we've imbibed this cultural assumption that says there, and it's, we say finances and maybe it is for some people. I think a lot of people, it's just, I want to, I want to live my life. I want to have fun because when I have kids, I know that kind of my fun is over. Those are, those are my endurance years. And so I need to get the the trip to Europe. I need to get the,
0: some of the best times.
1: No, they're absolutely the best times you're exhausted. It's tiring. And then you look back and you think that went so fast and I wish we were still there.
0: My mom always used to say, you don't, you never really grow up until you have children.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, you know, we're reading, you'll be glad to know this. I chose this book for our staff book. So we read a book every semester together. We're reading Tony Esselin's book on No Apologies, the, uh, Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men, which is quite a bracing book. Yeah. But he's, but he's such a good writer. And we were just talking about today that one of the things that marriage and family life does not only does it depend upon the strength of men, there is a masculinity that is not toxic masculinity. Not only does it depend on the strength of men, but actually, family life is meant to be that God given institution that channels the strength and the energy and the vitality of men in the best direction. So it's not just that family requires men men really need the family that that's what a monogamous marriage is supposed to do is to harness that virility in the right way and tie you to your children and to the rearing and raising of those children.
0: I think that's right. I think motherhood is is more let's say instinctual and natural It's yeah. a, well easier for women. I don't mean that it's easy to be a mother that's just it comes more naturally, where I think fatherhood is a is almost an, acqui- an acquired virtue. It requires the man to man up, so to speak, and and take responsibility in a way that the woman can't help but feel the bond to the child she's given birth to. Not to say parents don't I mean, as a father, I can testify, I felt very strongly at the birth of my children. But, you know, we have a compa- ability to walk away the way the woman doesn't. And to, to not walk away is a as a, that was, what I think, part of what my mother meant about growing up.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just, it's a biological fact. You know, people used to be, you got kicked off of Twitter for stating these biological facts, but <laughs> it, it is a biological fact that it's women who who incubate and gestate the, the next generation. So that, yeah, they have that experience, which a man will not have, and then birth that, and then... In many or most cases, if possible, they will nurse that child. All of those things, just biologically, yes. a mother is tied to her child. And, and Esalen points out in the book, if you see a mother you know, looking longingly in her young child's eyes, sitting on the lap, of course, that, that's sweet and that's proper. But you, you expect that. You see it from... A father, and it's and it's something that catches your attention. And I can even see walking through airports or public places with some of my little kids. I mean, it's it's a hundred to one the women that stop and and do googly eyes or say something sweet to the to the men. And frankly, you'd be a little concerned if it was all the men, you know, leering at your little children. But that's how God. That's how we're wired. And so, for a man to embrace this role in the family is something that is more learned and taught and passed on from from one generation to the next. And we need to encourage both encourage men who have their own personal agency to to make this kind of life. And we also need to speak into the the larger cultural assumptions that sometimes mitigate against men growing up to be real men.
0: You conclude the essay with saying that Children or having children is an act of transcendence, which I think really resonated with me. I think in the Bible, children, the genealogies, are they're kind of the forward arrow towards eternity. You know, they're that they're what drive time forward in the in the Book of Genesis. And I think children are for almost in all cultures natural signs of immortality. They're a kind of natural hope. But you're kind of drawing something more here because it's also not just the procreating; it's the raising of children. Do you see that also as a kind of? I guess it's an act of transcendence. You're 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 investing in them. You're, yeah. You're giving them life, and then you're casting them into the future where you won't be there.
1: Yeah, that's right. We're we're used to thinking, at least in Christian circles, children as a blessing, and they are. We've talked about that. Children as a duty or obligation. They are to some degree. So this last point I thought was really important, and and you even gave good feedback, Rusty, in the editing process, mentioning these genealogies. I thank you for that. To look at how the transcendence, meaning beyond us, uh, above us, into the future. So when I send, I I write this, when, when I send my kids out the door I don't say this every day, but sometimes if they got, a, they got a big race or a big test or some new adventure, and I'll look them in the eye and say, no, don't forget, you're a D young And I, I say it sort of tongue in, you know, they're used to my dad's speeches. But what I mean is our name means something. And it means something about who we are and what we value and what we believe. And it also means you're going out into the world. In a way, you're my representative, you're my wife's representative, and you're, you're part of this larger story of our name. And then you can put a very easily a Trinitarian lens on that, because in baptism, we're named with God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And having that name is then being his image bearers in the world. Even just on an earthly sense, it is an act of that transcendence. Yes, going up towards, towards God, but also going out into a world that they'll go where I can't go, do things that I can't do. And it's an act of not only blessing, but hope and transcendence as the Lord gives us opportunity to have children.
0: It's a vision I, I think we certainly need to promote and embrace. So thank you so much for this piece. And thanks for being on
1: the podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity.